When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. She's a fashion blogger, model, and entrepreneur. She's amazing. The latest tips on fashion, beauty, wellness, travel, and her lifestyle. And now, here's the founder and creator of Not Basic Blonde, Olasha. Hi loves, welcome back to another episode of Not Basic Blonde podcast. I have a very interesting guest today. Her name is Emmy Morin and Emmy is a psychotherapist who turned into a successful author with a book series of 13 things mentally strong people don't do, mentally strong parents don't do, mentally strong women don't do, and mentally strong kids don't do. So in this episode, Emmy and I will be covering very important topics. How to build your mental strength, what inspired Amy to write a series of books, what are the best tips for detoxing your thoughts, is it possible to cure anxiety and panic attacks without medication, just with different techniques, what do you think of toxic positivity, what are the best ways to stay mentally strong during crisis, and how to reframe your negative thoughts, and so much more. But before we dive in, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Not Basic Blonde podcast on Apple Podcasts. Hi, Amy. Welcome to Not Basic Blonde podcast. I'm so glad to have you as my guest. And first question I always ask everyone because we would love to learn more about you. So would you please tell our listeners about yourself, your career? Sure. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I started my career working as a therapist in a rural Maine and saw pretty much anybody who came through my door. So I treated people for depression, anxiety. I worked with both kids and adults. And a couple of years into my career, I wrote an article that went viral. It was called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And 50 million people read that article. 
So based on that, I got the opportunity to write my first book, which was called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And since then, I've spent most of my career writing, speaking, and talking about mental strength and how do we develop more mental strength. And I recently became the editor-in-chief of Very Well Mind, which now holds the wonderful distinction of being the biggest mental health site on the internet. And I do their podcast as well, the Very Well Mind podcast. I host that show twice a week. And I continue to write and speak and spread the word on how to grow mentally stronger. It's amazing. But what inspired you to study mentally strong people, mentally strong like niche? So it really came out of my own life experience. I, when I became a therapist, I thought, okay, I have all this head knowledge, all this information I learned in college to teach other people these skills. But about a year into my work, my mom passed away suddenly. She had a brain aneurysm. And as I was grieving, I thought, I want to know why some people go through tough times and come out stronger and other people go through tough times and they stay stuck. Because I would see people in my therapy office who fell into one of those two categories. Sometimes people went through really hard times and they were still hopeful. They felt like the tough times that they went through helped them to become better people. But then I saw other people that went through tough times and they felt like like their life could never be good again. They were angry. They were bitter. They had no hope for the future. So I wanted to know what separated those two people. So I set out to study it mostly because I was curious for my own reasons. I wanted to know how do I go through this tough time and come out okay. And I had like a revolving case study all day long. There was eight or 10 people in my therapy office and I could study them. And I figured out pretty quickly, it wasn't about what people did. Sometimes it was more about what they didn't do. People who didn't have certain bad habits were more likely to be mentally stronger. And And so I studied exactly what those habits were and started applying them to my own life and teaching them to other people. I was glad that I did because on the three-year anniversary of the day that my mom died, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And obviously at 26, you're not supposed to have a heart attack. You're not supposed to pass away suddenly. And I thought, I'm a widow. I don't have my mom. What am I going to do with my life? And fortunately, I had learned about some of those things that mentally strong people don't do. And that helped me. I didn't want to think of all the things I had to do. I wanted to know as long as I don't do these certain things, I'll be okay. And it helped me get through. It took years to heal my broken heart, but I felt like, like I went through the grief. I didn't go around it, which is our tendency. When we experience tough things, we want to avoid it and mask the pain as much as we can. But if you really want to heal, you have to go through. So I went through it and I'm glad that I did because I felt like, all right, I can build a new life again someday. And I was fortunate enough to find love again, a new job and a new house. And I thought, okay, this is the next chapter of my life. But almost as quickly as I did, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I just thought this isn't fair. I grieved for so long. I don't want to grieve again. I just wasn't sure I could handle it. But that's when I sat down and I wrote myself a letter about what mentally strong people don't do. And it was really the first time I'd seen it on paper. But seeing it on paper was really helpful. I would read over that list when I was having a tough time and I found it helpful. And that's how I ended up putting it on the internet. I thought maybe it will help a few people. I thought maybe five people would read the article, but 50 million people read it. And that's what changed the course of my career. But Really, my interest in learning about mental strength at the time was just very personal. I just wanted to know in my own life, how do I become the strongest and best version of myself? And now I get to share what worked for me. And thankfully, other people find it helpful too. So sorry you had to go through this, like overwhelming. 
I'm glad you came out strong out of it. And I do see a lot on social media, especially people do give up and people actually have experiences and they come out strong. And I see that a lot. They say like, oh, those challenges made me stronger. Those challenges made me a better person. But yeah, it's actually, it's tough, but it takes strength. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's t- and we all go through tough times. We all have pain in our lives. And I feel like we're never really taught how do you deal with emotional pain other than to bury it, to mask it, to pretend it doesn't exist. And I'm hopeful that we're going to make a change or we're going to start teaching people better skills of how do you cope with painful experiences? How do you get through tough times? How do you deal with issues when, when they're just extremely painful, when you're struggling? And that we can have more conversations about it so people will know where to get help and how to get help if you need it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And in your opinion, how do you build mental strength? And what's the secret of becoming mentally strong? So I, I gave the TEDx talk about the secret of becoming mentally strong. And ultimately, it's about giving up the things that hold you back. If we talked about mental strength the same way we talked about physical strength, people would understand, it's easier to understand, it's easier to talk about. So when it comes to being physically strong, we know you'd go to the gym and you'd lift weights. But if you really want to see results, you also probably want to quit eating so much junk food. Mental strength is the same. We need good habits in our lives. Like you need to challenge yourself. You want to practice gratitude. You want to have healthy coping skills like writing in a journal or doing yoga. But you also want to give up the bad habits that are counterproductive. Otherwise, all those good habits in your life won't really get you very far. So I talk a lot about how to give up unhealthy habits like saying sorry for yourself. How do you stop giving away your power? How do you stop giving up after your first failure? When you do those certain things, all of your good habits become a lot more effective. So that's the first part is give up the counterproductive bad habits. And then the second part is really about performing mental strength exercises every day, just like bigger biceps, you should probably lift weights and work out. Same thing for our mental muscle. You need to lift some mental weights and build those muscles. You might say, I'm going to start a gratitude. Maybe you write down three things you're grateful for every day. Really easy mental strength building exercise. Another one might be that you decide that you're going to uh, change the way that you think. Instead of calling yourself names and beating yourself up for a mistake, you start practicing using more self-compassion. You talk to yourself like a trusted friend. Changing the way you think will definitely help you become mentally stronger. Changing the way that you feel. So knowing that you don't have to be happy all the time. You can embrace uncomfortable emotions, but at the same time, you have some control. If you're in a really dark space, you don't have to stay stuck there. And then it's about changing your behavior to know how do you say, motivate yourself to take action? How do you push yourself to do hard things? How do you make sure that you're taking care of yourself? You need to sleep. You need to eat a healthy diet. You need to get exercise. And how do you push yourself to do those things? How do you make sure that you're balancing self-care with challenging yourself? Those are the kinds of things that will make you much stronger. These are great tips. And also you have a series of books like 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, Kids and Women Don't Do, like a series of books. What inspired you to write it? You already said that it came from the letter you wrote, but would you please tell us more in detail? Sure. Yeah. So the first, the article I wrote was called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. So that led to the book. A literary agent called me and said, you should write a book. I didn't even know what a literary agent was. I had no intentions of ever writing a book. But within about a month of writing that article, she got me a deal with the biggest publisher in the world, HarperCollins. And that's how the first book came to be. When that book came out, I had so many people say, if only I had learned these things sooner, if I could have learned this as a young person, 
it could have changed the course of my life. So I decided to write the parenting book so that parents would say, here's how I teach my kids how to be mentally strong. Here's how we incorporate it into our lives. And then um, when that book came out, I started getting a lot of questions from women. And they said, we see so many examples of mental toughness, but it's often a Navy SEAL or an athlete that tends to be a man. What does it look like to be a mentally strong woman? So I wrote my women's book next. And then I still kept getting more questions from parents saying, all right, kids are struggling these days. What else can I do? So my next book is coming out in April. That's called 13 Things Strong Kids Do. And it's uh, a book that really just teaches kids in the eight to 12 year old range how to build their mental muscle. And it's fun. It's got graphics and kid-friendly language and stories that I'm hopeful that will really resonate with kids. That's wonderful that you're touching all the categories and kind of doing it for everyone. It's amazing that you have a series of books. Thank you. It's exciting to, to keep putting that out in the world. And as long as my readers keep asking questions and keep telling me what they want next, I'm happy to create content that's meeting their needs. Yeah, I agree. And what are the best tips for detoxing your thoughts? So when it comes to the, the kinds of thoughts that you have, First, we need to pay attention to them because we get into patterns. Maybe you always predict bad things are going to happen. Maybe you beat yourself up for things that happened in the past. Or maybe you get stuck ruminating and rehashing things that, that already happened and they just replay in your head over and over. But you really want to pay attention to the kinds of thoughts that you have. So sometimes for people in my therapy office, I'll recommend that they uh, keep a, a thought diary. And pretty quickly, when they start to write down the kinds of thoughts that they have, They'll recognize some patterns uh, in the way that they think. And then it's helpful to say, all right, if you're always calling yourself names, if everything always boils down to the fact that you're not, you think you're not good enough, or if you always predict horrible things are going to happen, what can we do about it? So it might be a matter of just not believing some of those thoughts, because a lot of what your brain tells you is a lie. So you can learn to, to figure out what's truthful and what's not. You can also figure out how do you start talking to yourself again, more like a trusted friend. So when you're struggling with a decision, you might say to yourself, what would I say to my friend who had this problem? And we often give other people advice much easier than we give that advice to ourselves. We're kinder, we're more compassionate to other people, but it takes a lot of the emotion out of it. And so I would say for people, if they're trying to detox their thoughts, those are the places to start, to figure out, to recognize some of the patterns in your head. And then to find uh, healthy replacements. And there's all sorts of exercises. I talk about them in my book that go into more detail about replacing your thoughts and how your thinking affects how you feel and how your emotions affect how you behave and this cycle that we want to break. Because sometimes it makes more sense to change your behavior first. If you're doubting your ability to succeed, you might never talk yourself into applying for a new job or trying out for a, a team. So instead, you just have to do it. You have to push yourself. And you might then prove to yourself, all right, I guess I'm better than I thought I was. And that can actually physically alter your brain over time. Your brain will see that you're more competent, you're more capable. But you have to push yourself to do those things that your brain's doubting that you can do. And when you succeed, you'll change the way that your brain sees you over time. I love the idea of having a thoughts journal. And also, like, Usually the hardest part is fears when your brain pushing into some fears and like, you know, you're creating different fears with your brain and then you start getting anxiety over it. Like, what's the best way to change that pattern? I mean, I know you have to, like most people say you have to jump into fear and you still have to do it anyway. But, you know, sometimes it's so hard. It is. And sometimes people go about it the wrong way. So when you have a, a fear, a really big fear, especially if it's something specific, like 
somebody who's afraid of public speaking, for example, you don't want to just get on a stage in front of 10,000 people and then think you've solved your problem. As a therapist, I help people figure out how do you overcome fear in a very step-by-step manner. You want to start slow. And when you face a really small fear, then you take the next step. So somebody who's afraid of public speaking, you might start by just practicing in front of your mirror to yourself. And then you practice in front of one person and then you practice in front of five people and you just take it in very small steps because sometimes people say, face your fears and they take a giant leap and that actually makes it worse. It can traumatize you. It can make your brain think that you can't handle it, especially if it doesn't go well. So you want to face your fears one small step at a time. And when you do something that feels just a little bit scary, you gain confidence in your ability to do it. And then you can take the next step. It's when we try to take too big of a leap that often it backfires and people say, I'm never doing that again. And then they don't want to ever face their fears. Yeah, I agree. That's what most people have. Like some people are afraid of flying and they get on the plane and then anxiety and panic attacks happening. And then you don't want to get on the other plane after that, right? Yeah, I can't tell you how many people I've heard who get to their layover and they never get back on another flight ever again because they've terrified themselves. And because they weren't equipped to take that first flight. So it's a matter of saying, okay, how do you make sure that you have the tools and the skills that you need? And then if you start to panic on the flight, what are you going to do? And then what do you do during your layover and having a plan in place? And for people that are struggling with facing their fears, go talk to somebody. Therapists help people get through this all the time. And I can attest to this, that with practice and facing your fears slowly, but surely Uh, your anxiety will start to go away over time as opposed to attempting to do it all at once, which can probably make your anxiety worse. I agree. And what are the habits for coping with stress that are actually making your anxiety worse? Oh, that's a great question. So we all have some probably unhealthy habits in our lives with what we do when we're stressed out. Some people reach for food and find that eating a lot helps them feel better in the moment, but then backfires in the long run because they physically don't feel well. Other people turn to alcohol. Some people turn to social media and they're scrolling through their phones constantly. Other people are binge watching TV. So it's important to say, what, what do I do? And almost any coping skill in moderation can be good. But when we do too much of it, it becomes unhealthy. So watching a TV show when you're stressed out could be good. But watching 10 hours of TV, obviously not so good. And so it's important to say, at what point am I doing this to the extent that it's introducing new problems in my life? Or at what point am I doing this and it's, it's not making me feel any better? It's not helpful anymore. It's uh, creating problems in the long term. And again, almost any coping strategy can do that. If somebody says, I read books, that can be really healthy. But if you're reading to the point that you can't get anything else done, that's when it becomes unhealthy. So I always encourage people to take a look at what do, what do you do in your life when you are feeling stressed out? Video games aren't necessarily evil or using your phone on social media isn't a bad thing, but what extent is it starting to fill up your time? Are you just avoiding paying your bills because that's too anxiety for provoking? Are you avoiding doing things you should be doing like exercising because you're watching so much TV? Just take a look at how those things are affecting your life and whether they're reducing your stress in the long term or adding to it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Is it possible to cure anxiety and panic attacks without medication, just using different techniques? Because I know like in Russia and other countries, they use techniques more. They don't push you into like antidepressants and, you know, anti-anxiety medicine. But here they put you on antidepressants right away. And like, that's the first thing they do. And they don't really give you any techniques, especially like, you know, when you go to insurance doctor, 
they don't really care about curing you with different techniques. I mean, they might give you some information to read, but not actual exercises. And so they just tell you, go home and take your medicine. And basically that's all, but that doesn't cure people and people still have it. Some people struggle with it all life. So what do you think in your opinion? I definitely think we can manage those things without medication in most cases. As a therapist, I like to use medication more as a last resort. So if somebody is so depressed or they're so anxious that they can't practice the skills that we're talking about in the office, or the skills aren't working right away, sometimes we then talk about medication alternative as a backup of something to get them through momentarily so that we can work on these skills. But I think it's so important for people to have the skills, the tools, and the knowledge to combat those things. And if you take panic attacks, for example, there's some very clear things you can do to deal with panic attacks. It's about exposure therapy, one small step at a time, just like facing a bigger fear. And anxiety as well. It's about knowing that you may be an anxious person most of your life. You may not ever get rid of it but that you can learn how to live really well with it. And there's tons of skills, strategies, coping skills about managing your symptoms, about knowing what your triggers are, about living your best life, even though you might have an anxiety barrier. So yeah, I don't like to hear that a lot of people are finding that they're just given pills or prescribed something without being given the education, without being taught how to manage the symptoms and without knowing what are the side effects of the meds or can I be on these long-term? There's a lot of medications that you don't want to stay on for the rest of your life for various reasons, but you need to have lots of conversations with doctors. And I always encourage people if they are on medication to see a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist specializes in mental health medications as opposed to a family doctor who prescribes all sorts of medications. Uh, A psychiatrist, if you can see one, can definitely help narrow down which medications at which doses, how long you should be on it. They'll usually provide a much better education. And you can ask to see a therapist or call a therapist yourself if you want to make sure that you are working on alternatives to medication as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. But you know, the craziest thing right now, because everyone is going through a lot and they're not like there's limited help out there. And I know so many friends and tell me that they can't even get to a therapist and they have to wait for two months. Right now, that's such a high demand. Everyone is so overwhelmed with it, but there is no even help available. I mean, not much help available. That's the worst part. It is because when you're suffering and you feel like you're really struggling with anxiety, depression, sort of mental health problem, the last thing you want to do is wait two months. You want to get in today. You know, sometimes it feels like two hours is too long to wait, let alone two months. One of the good things is right now is online therapies available almost everywhere. So for people who can't see a therapist in person because the waiting list is too long or because uh, they don't feel safe going out of the house. Online therapy really is an option. And I think in most places, most subscription services, you can see an online therapist usually within 24 hours. It's not the same as sitting down and talking to somebody face-to-face, but sometimes you can have video chat appointments. Sometimes you just chat over um, instant messaging kind of services. Sometimes you can go in a live chat, but it's a one alternative to say, okay, how do I talk to somebody right away? And other alternatives, there's lots of free support groups, things like that online too isn't necessarily a substitute for seeing a therapist face to face, but it's an option while we wait. And I'm hopeful that that we will have more therapists out there so that people can get in and see people because I know how frustrating and how awful that is to wait so long to see somebody. Yeah, that's so true. And do you know what kind of chemical reactions happening in your brain, why it causes like triggers, anxiety, and panic attacks? You know, our brains, the chemicals in our brains uh, need to be at a certain balance. 
that we have things like dopamine and serotonin and all of these chemicals that have to be uh, let out from neurotransmitters and sucked up by other ones. And, and it's a very delicate balance. And sometimes it doesn't take much to get those things off balance just a little bit. And, and that's why medication sometimes can help play a role just to balance out those chemicals enough so that people can take the actions that they need to feel better. But it is just a very, it's important for people to know that when you're struggling with a mental health issue, it's not a sign of weakness. It doesn't mean that you aren't a good person or that you're not trying hard enough. Instead, it might mean, yeah, your brain chemistry is off a little bit. That's okay. That happens to all of us sometimes, or that just like you can develop a physical health issue, even if you take really good care of yourself, anybody can develop a mental health issue, especially right now where we're struggling so much during the pandemic. Yeah, and that's especially now and been stuck. Some people have been traveling and living life, but been stuck at home and just like totally depends on someone's choice. But still, like some people got hit really hard. with. Yes, definitely. What do you think of toxic positivity? So a lot of times people will think that being mentally strong means that you're always positive, but that's definitely not the case. When people are like, oh, just look on the bright side or something good will come out of this, or I'm sure everything will work out just fine. And even when bad things happen, they just don't want to acknowledge it. It's more like denial and it's not healthy at all. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to acknowledge that was really hard and maybe nothing great came out of that really hard thing I went through. That's okay. But I see so many people that just want to be, they think that positive thinking is the cure-all. It's a sign that you're doing well in life and that you should always do it. But the truth is you have to uh, be realistic if you want to be mentally strong. And it's not about thinking like, okay, this is all going to work out and everything's going to be great. Instead, sometimes mental strength means thinking this might not work out the way I want, but I'll get through it somehow anyway. And that's a a much healthier way of thinking rather than assuming I'm going to win. I'm always going to get this. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. Because people that think that way all the time are really ill-equipped and ill-prepared for the realities of life. So it's a healthier outlook to say, yeah, that was really hard or I'm really struggling here. To acknowledge the, the bad stuff is a sign that you're much mentally healthier than if you're somebody that always has to sugarcoat everything and pretend that life is better than it is. Yeah, I absolutely agree that we have to acknowledge your, we have to acknowledge what's going on, actually, not just sugarcoating everything. I like how you said it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, that's a huge misconception where people think mental strength is about always being positive about everything. It's not. <laughs> yeah. What are the best ways to stay mentally strong during crisis? So when you're in the middle of a major crisis, the best, sometimes you it's not even a time to build mental strength. It's more of a time to just try to get through. It's you're more in survival mode and that's okay. So if you are in the middle of facing something horrible, like a extreme health issue, then your goal is to say, what can I do today to just take care of myself? And it might be that you work on eating a healthy diet and sleeping the, the, and getting any exercise that you can. And basically it boils down to how do you focus on what you can control? If we took this pandemic, we've been in it for over a year now. And so while this is a crisis, it's not a short-term crisis. This is more of a long-term issue. But to say, what can I, how do I focus on what I can control? Well, you can control how much media you watch. People who are just glued to the news are struggling more with mental health than people that limit it because there's so much bad news out there. Or you might say, what can I control? I can control how well I eat, how much I sleep, how well I take care of myself, how much exercise I get. And, and then in the case like this, where it's stretched out for a year, you can control how much time you put into building mental strength, how much energy you put into the things that make you healthy. 
And so I would say the number one thing to do when you're in a crisis is just focus on what you can control because we, the more that we focus on things we can't control, the more anxious we become. And then when we can't control those things, our anxiety skyrockets. And then the more our anxiety skyrockets, the more negative our thoughts become. And it's this vicious cycle. But if you just take a deep breath and say, what can I control today? And it might be, I can control whether I leave the house. I control whether I wash my hands. Just focus on the little things that you can do. It helps your brain make more sense of it and feel like, okay, even though I can't control the state of the world, there are some things I have control over. And we always have something we have control over. It's our effort, our attitude, the way we think, the way we act. So just managing that can really help you get through to the other side of a crisis. Love this advice. I love how you said it. Focus on little things that control. So true because other things we can't control. Actually, like you said, increases our anxiety. Yeah. And so often that's what happens when we watch the news and we think, oh, horrible things are happening. The planet's coming to an end. You can't control that. And thinking all about all the doom and gloom and all the things other people are doing and how you wish they didn't do those things and worrying so much about what's going to happen in the future, all of those things, it just makes your anxiety worse. So if you can say, all right, what's with in my control today. Focus on those things. It can help you feel a lot better. Absolutely. How do you reframe your negative thoughts? So when you think something negative, I talk, there's an exercise. It's actually, I've got one in my kid's book that really breaks it down, but we call it blue thoughts versus true thoughts. And blue is an acronym that talks about blaming yourself, looking for the bad news, unhappy guessing and exaggerating negative things, and then replacing it with something that's more true. So when you think, oh, nobody likes, that's probably not true. Ask yourself, who's somebody that likes me? Well, my dog likes me. My aunt likes me. Come up with a couple of exceptions to the rule. Or when you think, I'm not going to do well at that job interview next week. Stop and take a minute and say, well, what's the opposite? How do you argue the opposite? What, maybe something really good will come out of it. Maybe I'll nail the interview. Just to remind yourself that the, the way that you're thinking is just one possibility, but there's always a lot of possibilities. And when you can remind yourself of that, your brain will see that, again, not everything you think is true. And if you go back to the other question we talked about earlier and just asking yourself, what's something I would say to my friend who had this problem? And then give yourself that same advice. That's usually the easiest way to reframe negative thoughts because, again, we're usually much kinder to other people than we are ourselves. Oh, I love it. I love how you said it. Tell that to your friend. It's so true. Actually, when you think about it, it actually makes sense. Right. For whatever reason, we, you know, we don't call our friends names and we wouldn't let them call us names, but we're okay doing that to ourselves. But just asking yourself that question helps you develop a much kinder inner dialogue. Yeah. And where can our listeners find you? Your social handles, your information, and do you accept new clients? So right now I'm not seeing new clients. Most of my time is spent doing speaking engagements and hopefully writing more books. But you can find more information about me and you can watch my TEDx talk at my website, which is Amy Morin, LCSW is in licensedclinicalsocialworker.com. And if you want information on how to deal with various mental health issues, our website where I'm the editor-in-chief, verywellmind.com is a great resource. And you can find me on Instagram at Amy Morin Author. Great. Thank you so much, Amy, for providing such valuable information. Thank you for being my guest. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That was all for today, guys. I hope you really enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Not Basic Blonde podcast is available on all the major platforms with new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. To support the show, tag NBB podcast on your Instagram stories and check out more behind the scenes on Instagram as well at notbasicblonde underscore 
or NBB podcast. And if you haven't, subscribe, rate, and review Not Basic Blonde podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.